you may not want to own it as part of the truth, but how people perceive you is their truth. And let me tell you in sales, that matters a, a hell of a lot more than what you think of yourself. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to this week's episode of It Takes Grits. With me today, I have got Lizzie Hofer, and she is the number one. Check this out. This is so cool. When I met her, I was like, oh my goodness, you've got the coolest title ever. The number one female loan officer in the USA. She's here to teach practical money tips to help you make smart home purchases. So money, finances, women in power. I love it. Lizzie, welcome to the show. Woohoo, you got me all pumped up. <laughs> I love this. And um, we sat opposite dinner uh, last night at a mastermind that we were at a couple of months ago and just like connected and I had a million and one questions for you. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to conserve all of this and record it and so that I can have it as reference and all of my audience can have it as well. So we're going to go through today Lizzie's story, how she got to where she is today, the grit that it took. When should you buy a home? I've got some questions about that myself. Um, how do you know what your monthly mortgage should be like? Biggest mistakes people make when taking out a loan and then a couple of really common questions that Lizzie has got from her audience as well. So first of all, Lizzie, how did you get to become the number one loan officer in the USA? Pretty dope title. I'd walk around with a badge on saying that that was, that was who I was. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so funny story. So anything is uh, just about marketing. So, um, and also marketing and then whatever you're afflicted by. So I will tell you of this. So um, I like just to kind of give you some brief history on how I started. So I come from a really small town on the border with Arizona and Mexico, and I come from a, a Hispanic family. And so the idea was for me to go to college, go to college, create a better life for myself so that I could help my family. Well, I get to college. My dad has like a he gets diagnosed with cancer and has a heart attack. And it is like determined at that moment that I'm going to have to now be a provider for a household. But I was a sophomore in college and had to get a job very early on to be able to support my family. Um, and so I got a job at the highest like paying job was $10 an hour as a receptionist at a mortgage company. So that's actually how I entered into the field. Um, and I would listen to people make phone calls all day long and they would call it slinging loans. I mean, it was really, really grotesque, honestly. And I just felt like I could do it better. And I was one day tasked with this, like shredding a big stack of what they called the dead leads. And I said, well, what if I don't shred these? What if I stay and call it my own time? You don't have to pay me and book appointments. Would you pay me for those appointments? And so what ended up happening is I started cold calling all of these old leads that were, you know, had been called like a million different times by different people and booking appointments for $50. So it was a quick way that I learned how to double my income and then be able to stay in school. So that was like my first early on lesson with like, you know, effort and becoming an asset to a company and figuring out what commission is versus like your earned income for hourly rate. And um, I, that moment alone, like that whole circumstance changed my entire life for how I was willing to work in the future. You know, most of us, you know, when we're from, you know, immigrant families or we come from, you know, poverty, like the one goal is to get the stable job, right? And that's the one thing that we're told, but, and, and the, 
there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like nothing wrong with that, but a stable job, you only have so much growth potential and so much earning potential. And the job is so time consuming that you don't really focus on any other strategies for helping bring in money. When I was able to figure out that if I work these hours as a receptionist and called for two hours, I mean, and I could triple my income with minimal effort, like it was just so powerful for me. So then every other job I had after that, I always negotiated a commission. I always negotiated a bonus. And that kind of drive is what led me to becoming a loan officer. And, you know, I was a loan officer in the, the great recession. So I started in 2008 and it was really, really difficult. And I had to figure out how to persevere. And in 2014, I had some ridiculous uh, falling out with my company, my business partner, and they basically said I was a weak link. And I can't even tell you the kind of fire, like knowing what I know now that I could be a receptionist and become a six-figure income earner. I was like, fuck you. I'm going to make you regret that decision. And I joined a coaching program. I got really hardcore into prospecting. And the idea was that I was going to be such a famous loan officer that they would regret firing me every single day. And so, I mean, so there's, it's a big story for why someone wants to achieve this. Now being the number one female loan officer, just so you guys know, for those of you who are entrepreneurs or salespeople, there's a, a book called the 22 immutable laws of marketing. And it talks to you about being number one in a category, even if you're the one that made up the category. So like, what's interesting is that I had been the number one female loan officer, but I was technically 16th or 10th or 9th one year. Like it kind of ranges. And um, I just invented the number one female loan officer because I happened to be, but then it happens to be a category. Now it's catching. And then interestingly enough, now we have actual lists for that. So, um, so long, long answer to your question. No, I think that's amazing. And, and two things that you said there that was super important was one, like you just went the extra mile. I have a chapter in my book and it's like, you went the extra mile. You weren't like, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll just shred these pieces of paper. It's like, no, there's actually something here. Like, hang on a second. Why not me? Why can't I change it? And so a lot of people would just maybe go through the norm and be like, okay, they asked me to do this, like, you know, whatever. But an entrepreneur mind or someone that's trying to go the extra mile is like, hang on a second. This is actually an opportunity. Um, and then second of all, sometimes when people fire us or they say no, like we, we feel sad, we feel upset and it's like, oh no, no, I'm going to show you what you are missing. And it gives us that strength to be like, what do I need to do to get better myself? So after that happened, you had the falling out of the company, you left, did you just go and like work on yourself to have more skills and to be better? Like, what was your, what was your approach because I know there's lots of people out there that kind of get no's from people, or, you know, you're turning up for things and people aren't agreeing with your ideas or whatever. It's like, how do you respond to that in a positive way? Um, well, I think a lot of top performers are really dysfunctional. So first and foremost, we all belong in therapy. We all have trauma. Um, there's lots of adversity in our lives. And so I think that embracing that and understanding that that pain is also part of your power is super important. Um, I will say that the first week, maybe month was very traumatic from getting fired. So I'm a perpetual achiever, worked my whole life, I only had gold stars. So the fact that I was fired was very humiliating for me. Um, I remember the weekend that I got fired. I literally shook so hard. I lost seven pounds. I like could not sleep. It, I had never like been that kind of stressed before. 
Um, but then I, I had a really good coach who called me actually over the weekend and said, you know, <laughs> that this would be a defining moment for me, that this would be like, my decision would be, I could be a victim or I could choose to be the boss. I just couldn't choose to be both. And so like every single time I would feel embarrassed or I would, cause you, you feel a lot of humiliation when people reject you publicly like that. Um, I would, I had like a song I would listen to. So I would turn it up so loud I couldn't think. And then I would get angry and focus on the prospecting. So like more activities will always lead to more closings. And then I read a book called Delivering Happiness and really started working on my, like, I knew that I got fired because I was too emotional in business. Like every issue was too catastrophic, too blown out of proportion. I couldn't manage my emotions. So I decided to decide like, that there was truth to why someone gets fired. Like there's always truth in why you're rejected. I decided to embrace it and work on those issues as well. Wow. Okay. So you said truth to why you get rejected. Yes. How do you, cause I feel like a lot of times, you know, a lot of people on this podcast who are listening have a side hustle and they're getting people saying no to things or they're not creating the community that they want, or, you know, they're not getting the clients. And there's truth to why you're getting rejected. So what is that truth? Um, for me at the time, I was a work terrorist. I was just too emotional, nasty to my staff. And I couldn't see that my panic for being like a failure was overriding everything. Right. And so I had to own that the same way that if you're making a bunch of cold calls and you're not making sales, there's something about your script that's off, the value proposition that's off, your tone that's off. And you just have to ask people why they said no. You know, when you get fired, they tell you why you're getting fired. You can choose to believe it, right? And, but like, results are not you. Does that make sense? Like, sometimes I have a bad day at work and I have to remind myself that it was a bad result, not a bad Lizzie. Mm. You know, and I, I think that that's like part of it. We take it too personal. And if you understand that feedback, when people give you feedback, it's typically from a place of love, but it is also from a place of honesty. Like you may not want to own it as part of the truth, but how people perceive you is their truth. And let me tell you in sales, that matters a, a hell of a lot more than what you think of yourself. Wow. So a hundred percent, it's more important what other people think of your delivery than it does about you. Because at the end of the day, that's the customer and that's their perspective perspective. And that's what's going to lead you forward. Yes. Wow. Amazing. That's gold. I'm just like, oh my goodness. I just like want to soundbite this up right now and just put it. Cause I know there's so many people that are really going to benefit this from this. Um, amazing. All right. So a couple of questions. We'll go into kind of yeah. the home, home side of it. You know, I had an apartment, I bought an apartment a couple of years ago and ended up selling it. Uh, it wasn't the right, I don't know if it was the right investment or it just wasn't the right fit for me. But how do you know when you should go in and buy a home? Like, do you should, should you have a certain amount of money down? Like, where, where your brain should be at? Um, so I always tell people it's dictated by your budget, actually. So what you can afford on a monthly basis, I think is more important than your down payments and uh, the type of loan. So essentially what I always have people do is figure out what their net take-home income is and if can they live off of 70% of that budget. If you can't live off 70% of the budget, you got to really focus on debt reduction. You, you really have to, or increasing your income, creating other streams, right? But once you can 
like successfully live off of 70% of your net take-home income, 30 to 50% of it, depending on your discretionary spending, should be used for housing. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, the other 30% should go into a rainy day fund and should also go into paying down additional debt until you have no debt. And then 30% should go to investment savings. So that's what I always tell people. The number one mistake that I find that most people make is that they come to me for me to tell them what they can afford. And what's crazy is like, I can tell you on paper what you qualify for. Okay. But what you should be paying when you should be buying, those are things that should be dictated by your finances. And I know that most people don't like to look at their finances because it's no fun to like, be like, Oh, I overspent at Starbucks you know, um, <laughs> but like you're like, again, it's like, you can be the boss or the victim, you know, and you have no one to blame if you're overspending. Right. So it's, you got to do your own budget first. Mm -hmm. And so what's the difference between somebody renting and then when should they go buy? Like how, where do you kind of work that bit out? Cause I've rented, I've bought a home. What's your, is it different for everybody? Or is it like, you should have a certain amount saved up to be able to buy? Is it better to rent? Is it better to buy somewhere? So it depends on the city that you're living in. So there's some cities where the cost of purchasing a home just far out exceed what the rent is there. And in those cases, like New York City, San Francisco, I mean, those are places where like, it's just not affordable for the regular person to buy a home. And then if they did buy a home, like, you know, they're most of the time maxing out their monthly budgets. And I think it's better served investing. Um, so I think that there's certain areas that you have to look at, but I think again, when your budget is ready, um, and then when you have a decent down payment, so I say anywhere between, you know, five to 10%, because um, that'll get you conventional financing. And also I think that when it, you're looking at like whether or now is the right time to buy, you also have to think about how long you're gonna be there and what the opportunity costs are of buying versus not buying. You know, like sometimes there are people that live at home, they don't have any mortgage costs or any rental costs, they're fine living at home. And they're going to have now an increased expense of owning a home. Now, if they're not planning on living there for like 10 years, chances are like they just have opportunity costs. You know, most people, if you live in a house for 10 to 20 years, you'll double your investment. Right. And I'm not and not just double the amount of money that you put down. Right. Because that happens within three to seven years. Truthfully, I'm talking about like if you bought a house for one hundred thousand, which I know is very low and you owned it for 20 years, that house is worth two hundred thousand dollars. You didn't put down one hundred thousand. Right. So it's super important that, you know, those types of things. Right. And you can compare them and know like what the penalty is for doing the thing or not, right? But in generally speaking, if you're gonna be somewhere 10 years, if you have a 5% down payment, if your budget says it's ready, right? You have at least three to six months worth of extra reserves in the bank, I say you should totally buy. Perfect, awesome. Yeah, it's it's crazy. The house that I had, it was an apartment, but we had, there was a HOA, HOA on it and a land lease and the th two combined was $800. Mm -hmm. just for those two things. And then it was like the rent itself was like 2,500. So it took it up to like over 3,000. And I was just like, it didn't feel right to have all of that money on a HOA and, you know, and the land lease as well. So I sold that place, but I'm definitely looking to, to buy again, um, you know, in, in the next year or so. So that's perfect. I love it. I love having experts onto my podcast because I ask all the questions that I need help with because we all need a mentor. Um, so what does your working environment look like now? Do you own your own place? Like, how did you create this own like company and yourself? Like, what does your day-to-day -day look like as an entrepreneur and how many hours do you work? 
Oh my goodness. Uh, so I work as a loan officer for a company called Cross Country. I don't have ownership there. I just literally, um, as a loan officer, you can park your business at different companies and fund your loans through there. Um, so my day-to-day -day is a lot consumed with the actual management of our team. We fund about you know 13 to 1500 loans within my branch. So it does require a lot of management. I mean, last year's production was $350 million. You know, so I mean, it's a it's a, it's a big business, you know, when you're comparing it to other small businesses. Um, but then I have a couple of other investment, you know, I have like an investment company. And then I also have a marketing company that does sales strategies for other loan officers. So, I mean, I definitely work a lot of hours, probably like more than definitely more than 40, probably not more than 70, but it is a lot. And um, so my day-to-day -day is a lot work, then I'm a mom and then I go to sleep. <laughs> That's, I mean, life of my, you know. Yeah. And is that just something that you've like, you are, cause I know for me, like, I love my work. I love what I do and I don't feel like it's a chore and I'm like, what else would I really do? But a lot of times you come into, you know, on the entrepreneur world and you're like, oh, I'm going to have all this free time and I'm going to be like, you know, it's this freedom. It's like, no, it's not even nine till five. It's like three till 11 PM. <laughs> Oh, I know. I know. Every, like I talk to a bunch of people get into real estate thinking that they're going to run their own schedules. And I'm like, um, this is a seven to seven day a week job. Like it literally is all the time. Um, so he, so Ariana Huffington actually had a really good podcast about this. And she said that there's certain people in the world that just like to work. Like I actually really like to work. I love to create things. I love systems. I love marketing, like all of that stuff brings me a lot of creative energy, but then there's also like, you know, overworking for addiction and overworking for codependence. And I think that there is a very fine line with entrepreneurs. So I definitely have been in a position where I was overworking because I was addicted to it, you know, and out of fear of like that, I would lose everything. I mean, I think that's a phase that most entrepreneurs go into, you know, um, I think now I'm, I work out of like just out of curiosity, like what else can I build? And that's a completely different place to be versus like, I've got to achieve for other people's recognition. I've got to achieve because I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose it all. Like now I'm just so curious about what I can build and how big this can become. It's so fun for me. And I, I don't really have a whole lot of other hobbies that I'd like to replace with it, you know, with this. I love that. I've never heard that before. I'm cu I'm curious because I love my work and I think I can relate to you on that because I'm always curious about, oh, if we did this kind of fitness challenge, how would people like it? If we added this feature to the app, like what would people say about it? Like, and it isn't and at the beginning, it's that scarcity because you're like, oh my goodness, like I'm going to stop working. I'm going to lose all my money. And like, it's going to, it's hard to get it off the ground. But I know I get told all the time, well, you, you work too much. You work too much. I'm like, but I love it. It's being creative. It's fun. And I am curious about building new things and trying them out. So I love that approach. I've never heard that before. So thank you for sharing that. You know, I think it's so weird is that like that whole, you work too much is always comes from people that don't have a ton of passions in their life. Like you would never tell an Olympian you train too much. Mm. Like you would, because we expect that they're going to be training 24 seven. And if they don't, you're like, what the heck? Like, don't you want the gold medal? Like you would never tell somebody who is a professional athlete, a professional technician, any of these things that they work too much. Somebody who's trying to cure cancer, like it just doesn't. But when you're an entrepreneur, right, we're constantly surrounded by people who aren't 
achieving or haven't discovered a passion that they would dedicate all of this time to, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, it's so true. You're like, if an Olympian took a day off, they're like, hey, don't you want to win the gold medal? <laughs> I mean, I remember they were like following Michael Phelps around and they were talking about how much food he eats and how much he swims and how many times a day he trains. And like, I mean, it was like an all day event. And I thought, like, this is the expectation of an Olympian. But what's weird is as a female entrepreneur, because I think I get this a lot because I do have children and I am married, like some, I get the most random questions about working all the time. It's like, people are like, who does your laundry? And it's like, well, it gets done. I just buy new clothes. No, just kidding. Um, I just, you know, like those are the weird kinds of judgments, but it's, it, it's because of who we surround ourselves with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely mums out there that probably have that, you know, that mum guilt of like, I'm not spending enough time here, or I'm supposed to provide for my family, but also do that. Have you figured out a balance between work life and balance life? Or do you not believe there is a thing called balance? Um, I don't really know. Here's what I, I know that I'm doing my best, you know, in life, I, I believe that my children will have issues because of who I am as a person, the way that I have issues because of the way my parents were, and they have issues because of the way their grandparents are. I have no disillusion that all of a sudden I'm going to be this perfect parents and my kids are going to come out completely unharmed, you know? Um, but what, what they will see is that I'm honest, I'm hardworking and I went for my dreams and that they can too. And the relationship that I have with my children is very pure and it's a hundred percent like committed. Right. So I don't do things that, you know, like I'm not spending time doing the laundry. I'm not spending time cleaning up after them. I'm not spending time doing all of like, you know, doing all the things that I know a lot of mothers do because that's part of their job. I am fortunate enough in this time in my life where I have a lot of assistance, you know, so that when I go home and I spend time with them, it is just good time. Like, I remember that was one of the things that I, I noticed in my parents, like my mom was always the one telling us what to do. She was always the angry one getting on us for our chores. And our dad was super fun. And it's because my dad didn't have the same kinds of responsibilities. And I just, I knew that automatically I, I just wanted to be the fun parent and I don't want that to go on to my husband either. I don't want him to become the bad guy. So it's like, well, how can I outsource all of these things, right? So that I have this just pure relationship with my kids, you know, and that they understand, like, it's interesting to see that my daughters understand that I bring home money and what that means for our family. And when I'm working, like the things that we can do. And when they talk to me about their own business ideas, it's really fun you know, but, but that's what they're seeing, you know? So is it balanced? I I honestly could not tell you. I think it's just, this is my tornado of a life. Mm -hmm. Like everything is involved. I love it. I love it. And it's like, you know, if you have, if you work a full schedule, it's okay to get someone to come in and have assistance. Like, I feel like sometimes we want to say, Oh no, I can do it all. Like I can do the laundry. I can clean my house. Like I don't do my own laundry. I don't clean the house. Right. But it's so that I can spend time with my audience or my customers or you know something like that there's nothing wrong with that um or also can't we just hate cleaning like I hate cleaning yeah but my husband loves it like that's her passion she's like she comes in she's like I just love transforming your house every week I'm like amazing we're a great partnership we're a great team yeah I love it so what are you excited about for this year what's coming up for you and that you're excited about um well lots of things so this is my second year at cross country Um, So it's nice to finally feel like I really belong here and I know how the systems work. And 
we are launching an app for all of our clients to help them figure out how to budget, how to introduce them to additional streams of income. Cause it's just, I think that is the one key piece in life that we're just not taught about. Like you have earned income or you take all the risks with being an entrepreneur. And there really is this third line where you can invest in things that cash flow and grow at the same time without having to be all or nothing, you know? So I, I'm trying to expose them to budgeting, additional lines of income, savings, and then how to set appropriate goals, right? So the app will like have a what if, you know, simulator, which tells them how to decrease their spending or how to increase their income, you know? But what do they need to be able to be successful at all of these things? So I'm excited. Um, we're in our like, it's kind of a funny thing. So you have an alpha phase or so in our alpha phase, our beta phase starts in uh, June. And then by the end of the year, it'll be a fully fledged app on the app store. Wow. That is so exciting. All, all the things apps, we can definitely chat about how that is. You're going to need someone just to kind of, you know, have a shoulder to cry on once in a while. Cause trust me, it's, uh, it's, there'll be a few days like that, but I'm going to prepare you. It's going to be great. We'll just get some red wine out and uh, we'll just, we'll just go through it. <laughs> I love your red wine drinker. Yeah. 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 I, I love, I love that, you know, how someone can just like put in their budget and like move things around. I think just visually sometimes seeing that, like, what does that look like if I put my money here? Because you're right. The two things that we're not really taught in school, well, one is personal development. Two is like finance. And then three is like food. You know, it's amazing. I'm like, they're the most important things, really. I was like, I was never taught how to like cook or what, you know, protein was or, or good food. So this is amazing. Well, I am so grateful for you to come on this. I've loved this episode. This is great. There's going to be loads of fun little sound bouts from that. So where can everybody find you on social media, Lizzie? Yes. So I have a YouTube channel, um, Lizzie Hofer, and it has just all of my money tips, all of the mortgage tips. So anything about housing and money you can find there. Um, and I also put a lot of practical tips on uh, my Instagram, which has my married last name. So Lizzie Irvine. So and you can find me in anywhere, basically that there's social media. Amazing. Well, we're going to put all of Lizzie's details in the link below. Thank you everybody for watching and listening. Make sure that you go and give her some love. We appreciate you so much, Lizzie, and we'll see everybody next week. Bye guys.